So let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight and we thank you for the love that you have lavished upon us in Christ. We thank you, Father, for your goodness, your grace. We thank you for your word that teaches us who you are. And tonight we rely upon the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do. It's not my ideas, it's not my words, it's not even your words from my lips, it's your words as anointed by the Spirit of God that will touch our hearts. And so, Lord, we're asking you to open the eyes of our understanding that you would see the hope of your calling for our life in all the areas of our life that's been given to us in Christ Jesus. For your word says that you have given to us all things that pertain to life and to godliness. And tonight we ask the Holy Spirit to search the depths of your heart, as your word says, and to draw it forth and to reveal to us the things that you have prepared for those who love you. Your word teaches us that you have held nothing back, that if you spared not your own son, but you delivered him up for us all, how will you not also together with him freely give us all things that you have? And so we put ourselves into your hands, Lord, into the hands of the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us and to speak into our lives tonight. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Whoever's in the sound booth, if there's anybody back, there's an echo up here. Whoever's back there, if there's anybody back there, thank you. Praise the Lord. Well, again, welcome tonight. Last week we began a series. I just felt a sense that it was time to not take a break from prayer, but from talking about prayer, to something that God's begun to work in my life over the last few years. Not just about healing, I've studied healing for years, but that healing, the message of healing, physical bodily healing, is an integral part of the gospel. And so often I think we've think, thought of it and even it's been taught as a separate subject. And as we get into this study, this series, I'm trusting that God will help us to see how in Jesus' eyes, in God's eyes, it's a very important part of the gospel. So our, our key scripture, the one we used last week and we'll use as our key scripture, is in Exodus 15:26. We spent some time looking at this last week, giving the background to it. And, and it's very simply this. God has now delivered Israel, his people, from the bondage that they were in in Egypt for over 400 years. And in essence, he has to reintroduce himself to his people that have been living in a, in a nation that was very intelligent, very intellectual, highly developed science and medical knowledge and practices. And in some of them are things that they learned how to do that our scientists have really not learned how to do even yet. And it was a nation that served other gods, over 2,000 gods this nation served. And so the people that God is bringing out, his people have been indoctrinated with this. And so God has to teach them who he is through a series of, of, of encounters that reveal himself to them, what he chooses to reveal to them, what he wants them to know about himself. And the very first encounter where he does this is in Exodus 15. I mean, they've literally just come out. They've crossed the Red Sea on dry land. They've been out there three days, and they've discovered that their water's run out. And they're by this stream called Mara, which they called Mara. And they go to drink the water and find out it's bitter. It may well be poisonous, but at least it's not drinkable. And so they cry out to Moses, which is their typical practice. Why did you bring us out here to die? They're only three days out. And Moses turns to God, and God tells him to take a tree and to take that tree and to throw it in the river. And when he does that, the water turns sweet. And we talked last week that the tree represents the cross. And the word, the river is named Mar, which is bitterness, the bitterness and the deadliness of sin. So when that tree was thrown into it, it healed the waters. And when that's done, God says these words to them, if they can put it up there. And he said, if you will diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I brought upon the Egyptians, verse 27, for I am the Lord who heals you. The first, this is the very first thing he reveals to 
his people when he's brought them out of Egypt, the very first thing about himself, there's seven, what are taught as seven redemptive names. These are seven aspects of God that he communicates to his people about himself. Using the word Lord, which we now, when it's all in uppercase, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh, which literally means the self-existent one. I am the very essence of who God is, and the first thing he reveals about himself, who he is, is I am the Lord your healer. Some translations say I am the Lord your physician. The Hebrew word is rafe, which literally means to fix whatever's broken or to mend it or to make it whole or to make it right in line with the way it was designed. So God is saying here through some translation, I am your physician, some of the translations say. But the key I want to look at here tonight is he doesn't say, I am, in the English says, I am the Lord who heals you. But the Hebrew literally says, I am your healer. And I want to talk to you about a, a distinction that's very important that God's begun to get through to me. I am the Lord who heals you, mends you, fix you. Okay. So the last time we saw that physical, the healing of physical disease is part of the gospel that we are to declare because it discloses something about God's nature and God's character, that He cares about us, and His caring and His love for us even goes down to the tangible areas of our life. So, it's often taught, and this is where we're going to begin something new tonight. I was I often heard taught in many things I've read about healing, uh, is that, that the, the, the faith for healing begins when the will of God is known. Faith for healing begins when the will of God is known. But I've learned something beyond that, and this is what I want to kind of get into tonight. God's will can vary from person to person. For instance, God had a will for me to be a pastor. He may well not have a will for you to be a pastor. He may have a will for you to do something else. Because it is true that we, in order to receive healing, in order to believe God for healing, you have to know that it is will to heal you. But simply knowing his will isn't enough. And I'll give you an example of that. One of the first stories in the book of Matthew where Jesus heals people is where he's done the Sermon on the Mount. He comes down from the mountain and, and a leper comes up to him. It's in Matthew chapter 8, the very beginning of it. And, and the, the leper comes and says to him, I know that you can heal me, but I don't know if you will heal me. And Jesus' answer is, I will. And I've heard that for years taught is that means that is Jesus is declaring, I will heal everybody. But I kept struggling with that. Why? Maybe it's just was his will to heal that leper. How do I know from that that it's God's will to heal me? And then as I got into it further, because knowing as it's taught, God will to heal the New Testament. So another way, another issue that comes up, in fact, many denominations teach this. It was God's will to heal when Jesus was on the earth. It was God's will to heal in the New Testament times, but that's a different era, a different dispensation. We're living in a different dispensation, a different time, in other words, where it's not God's will to heal the same way he did back then. Oh yes, God will heal some people, but not the way he did when Jesus walked on the earth. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes, how Jesus did that. So if, if you just look at it in terms of God's will, then theoretically at least God's will could change from one section of time or era or dispensation to another, or his will could change from one person to another. But this year, as I was meditating on healing, I was, I was dealing with this issue that they found in my ear, this cancer that they found in my ear. Uh, I really had to dig into this again, as I had in the past, and I read a statement that totally changed the way I looked at this. And that's what I want to I talk to you about tonight. What I've learned is it's, not, it's knowing God's character and God's nature which is the basis of our faith. And here's the difference. Where God's, somebody's will can change from one situation to another or one time to another, someone's character and nature can't change. So if healing 
What's behind healing is part of God's nature and part of God's character. His nature and character can never change. There are a number of places where the Bible says, I am the Lord, I change not. And I think it's significant that the word that's used in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language here, is I am your healer. That is who I am. It's part of my nature. So we're going to look tonight at what the Bible teaches us about God's nature when it comes to this subject of His desire, His willingness to heal us. To do that, we've got to go back and talk about something that that we talked a little bit about last week. Our image of God determines what we are able to receive from Him and how we're able to relate to Him. That's true of us. The image that you have if people are coming to this church or may visit here for the first time, and especially maybe some young people, and they look at me and say, what's this old hair, old white hair guy got to say that I, I can possibly relate to? Um, and, and, and that's an image that they have of me that immediately limits what they can receive from me. Hopefully, if that's where they are, they'll listen long enough to begin to hear what I'm saying and look past what I, what I look like. We looked last week at an example of this in, in, um, in Mark chapter 6, in verse 5 and 6. This is where Jesus, we talked a little bit more, look a little more detail, where Jesus returned to his own town, his own hometown, where he grew up. So they see Jesus coming, and they know that the man that they're seeing, this adult man at 30 years of age, they watched him when he was 25, when he was 20, when he was 15, when he was 10, when he was 5. They watched him grow up. And they, they, watched, they, they saw him and they identified with him as the son of Mary and of Joseph. In fact, in one of the versions of the story, that's how they refer to him. And so Jesus comes there and they have this image of Jesus. And we're going to look here at what the effect of that image did. Let's look at verse 5. He could do no mighty work there. We talked about this last week. It didn't say that he didn't want to. It didn't say that they interfered with it. He could not do any mighty work there except that he healed a few sick people and healed them. Verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief and he went about the villages in a circuit teaching them. Leave that up there a second. So we didn't go back to the earlier verses where it said why they couldn't believe him because they had an image of who he was and what he was like and they wouldn't let go of that image to receive him as the Son of God, the Messiah, who had come to perform the same miracles there that he had performed in other places. So this tells us that the image that we have of God, what we think of him, what we think of his character, of his nature, and what he's like, will determine what he is able to do for us. But look at Jesus' answer to that problem. So then he went about the villages in a circuit, and what was his answer to that? Teaching. So one of the purposes of teaching is to help us to understand who God really is, what His character is, what His nature is. And the only place we can go to do that, we talked a lot about this last week, is to the Word of God, what God tells us about Himself. What God tells us about Himself. Now let's go and look at this, this principle in another context. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Now we're dealing with a situation where the Apostle Paul is dealing with his, the church that he, had, that he had founded in Corinth. Corinth is a city, or was a city, in the southern part of Greece that was known, and we'll talk about this in a few minutes, that was known for their intellectualism, their, 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 uh, their um, uh, philosophy. They were very intelligent, very intellectual. Reminding me to let my son's dog out. so <laughs> He's going to have to wait. Um, he's on vacation this week. 
Uh, you put it back up again so I can get my head back in this. Okay, thank you. Uh, so Paul is here dealing with a church that he founded. They were, most of them were pagans. They'd been raised worshiping the, the goddess Diana and other gods, Greek gods. They were steeped with philosophy, which is a very intellectual, Greek philosophy, which is a very intellectual way of trying to understand the nature and reality around us, both the physical reality and also the spiritual or unseen reality. And Paul was having an authority issue because the problem was that although he had founded this, this church, he had written some things to them, which is 1 Corinthians, which was correcting them for how immature they were. So if you want to look sometime at the first and second chapters of 1 Corinthians and then chapter 3 also, Paul is addressing issues. In fact, you go on through the letter. He's addressing certain issues in that church with the authority that he had because as an apostle he had founded this church and that gave him a a right and an authority to speak into the lives of that church. Well, as with most immature Christians, they didn't like that. And so they wrote a letter back to him essentially criticizing him and in fact some theologians believe that they would not let him back in the church that he had founded. And they were accusing him, because this was the image they, had, they formed of him, they were accusing him of being very bold in his letters, but when he showed up, he wasn't quite so bold with them. So they were accusing him because they had an image of where he was coming from. They didn't understand he was correcting them out of love for them. He prayed for them almost endlessly, and he loved them dearly, and the correction he was giving them was that of a father. But they were resisting him, and they were resisting him also with some of these philosophical ideals. That's the background here. So Paul is now talking about the verses before that basically says, I'm restraining myself. I love Paul. He was very real with them. I'm restraining myself. Uh, He said, I I would love to come to you and really release the boldness that I have, but I'm not going to do that. And then he says, so he's talking about fighting against the obstacles that are in that church. And then he said, because he says, because I'm not going to come to you with carnal weapons. In other words, I'm not going to come to you and blast you out of my flesh. I'm not going to tell you what I think of you, but I'm going to deal with the real, the spiritual issues that are going on behind this. And then he leaves, gives us these very well-known verses. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not of the flesh, but they're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Stay there a second. Now, we often use that, and I've used this, teaching spiritual warfare and, and, and renewing the mind, using this strongholds to refer to mental strongholds and strongholds, spiritual strongholds over a church. And I believe it can be applied to that, but the specific context that Paul's referring to are ideologies and teachings about who God is. That's why I'm getting into this Discussion here. Now, verse 5. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Stay there a second. So the weapons that he is going to use, the spiritual weapons that he's going to use, are powerful to tear down these, these doctrinal strongholds. And look what they do. And arguments. That word in the Greek, the Greek word for that is a word that means a system of logical thinking. And that's what the Greeks were well known for. A system of logical, notice it's thinking, and in this case it was thinking about God and who God is, that, it, that exalts itself, look at this, against the knowledge of God. There's a reason why I'm going through, I'm laying a foundation here. So there are systems of logical thought, that, that, that exalt themselves against the knowledge, knowing what God is really like. And now we're going to apply this to this aspect of God, His character as our healer, as our healer. And how do we do that? By bringing every thought in captivity to the obedience of Christ. We could put it this way, bringing every thought in captive into obedience to the Word. In other words, what the Word says about this God. 
So that's talking about something that was going on in Greece in this church 2,000 years ago. How does that apply today? Because man has come up with different systems of thought to tell us what God is like in different areas of God's ministry, and these are man's idea, and because they don't line up with what God says about himself, they, they hinder us from the knowledge of God. And one of the terms for these systems of thoughts is religion. Theologians and religious thinkers that have formed their own image, their own concept of what God is like, and taught it as doctrine. And many of us were raised under that. And the, 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 the attitude, the strongholds that have a hold of much of the church today is this attitude of God's will towards healing and because they don't understand God's character. But this is also why this is so important, because they're blinding people's eyes to an aspect of God's character that Jesus felt was very important for us to see and to understand. So religion is man's own, is man's own idea of what God is like and what his will is towards us. It's interesting, the only religious people that Jesus got mad at were the Pharisees. And he got mad at the Pharisees. In fact, I think it's in Matthew's gospel in the three chapters where he's upset at them, all the woes he, he called upon them. When you boil it all down, it's because their doctrines, their teaching, were keeping the people from knowing their God. And therefore, they were separating them from the God who loved them and wanted to know them. And I believe God has that same attitude today. He's angry at things that block us from really knowing who He is and what He's like. So we're to take these thoughts captive and compare them to the Word, to Christ. Modern religion has told us that God really doesn't care very much about our physical health as much as He cares about the eternal matters, which is our spirit and our soul. And that tells us about something about God. We got it, and this is kind of what I was raised in, and I suspect many of you, many of you watching online may have been raised in this. Well, you know, God heals sometimes, and maybe some of you are raised. There's some churches out there that teach God doesn't heal anymore. That's kind of hard to sustain when there's so many people that have been healed. So the issue really isn't whether God heals. The issue is, will God heal me? And how can I have confidence that God heals me? which is so important because Jesus said, and I think we talked about this last week, or we've talked about this before, that the very key element in receiving anything from God is to have confidence that what you've asked of Him, He's already given to you. How can I have that confidence if I don't know that it's God's will to heal me? If I have a question about it, then I can't ever fulfill the basic condition of answered prayer that Jesus talks about in Matthew, Mark chapter 11, verse 24, that, and not doubt in your heart, but believe that what you said shall come to pass. That's the key element of faith. We talked about that in, in James chapter 1, the same thing. And so, so, so this is a very important issue. And it, again, it reflects on the character of God. So I want to go back and review something we talked about last week because, again, it may be a new concept to you. This has not always been the way God was taught. This began to enter the church's thinking, theology, uh, because God, again, God's revelation of who He is in this area starts with the verse we read, Exodus fifteen twenty six. We saw last week that God repeats that again in Exodus 23, 26, where he says, If you will serve me, I will bless your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your midst. God is initiating. They didn't come and ask him for this. God says, If you will serve me and not serve the other gods of the land where I'm taking you, I will, I will bless your food, and I will remove sickness from your midst. And the number of your days, your life, I will fulfill. That's God's heart speaking out to his people. And then we saw last week, we ended with this in, Exodus, in Deuteronomy 7, verses 14 and 15. God reiterates the same promise to the next generation as they were about to enter the promised land. That's three times God tells his people 
that he cares about their physical health and their well-being, and he wants to remove any sickness from their midst, and he wants to be their healer. We didn't look at this, but we're going to look at this tonight. King David, uh, the, the great king of, of, of Israel, he had a personal relationship with God. He knew some things about God. And he didn't develop these in seminary. He developed these as a young shepherd boy taking care of his father's sheep out in the wilderness in the dead of night when he's just out there with a bunch of sheep, his father's sheep, and they're wolves and there's a bear. We at least know about those who want to come and eat his father's sheep and maybe even David. And David learned to trust his God. The the wonderful 23rd Psalm and so many of the other encouraging things that David writes for us in the book of Psalms comes out of a real relationship that he had with God. So much so that David was comfortable getting angry at God when he didn't understand things. That's why the Psalms are so beloved because they're, they're a man's expression of his heart and his emotions and his questions and his love and his all these things back to his God. Most of the rest of the Bible is God talking to us. So we're listening in in the Psalms of a man who knew his God and knew he could talk to his God and knew things about his God. And he wrote these, ver- these so precious verses in Psalm, Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefit. That's not what it says. Forget not all his benefits, plural, which tells us there's more than one benefit. Many denominations today teach us that Jesus came to win us one benefit, and that's that we should go to heaven. If that's the only one out there, I want it. But David understood that his God had many benefits, Forget not all his benefits, verse 3, the first one, most important one, who forgives all your iniquities, and notice what follows it, who heals all your diseases. As we go forward in the study, we're going to see how the forgiveness of sins and the healing of our bodies go hand in hand in the gospel. Well, we'll end it. There are more he talks. Well, let's go on. Verse 4 who delivers your life from destruction, crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So David had a revelation of God that was beyond just God cares just about your spiritual life and your your eternal part of you. He cares about every part of you. Can you begin to see this casts a different understanding of what God is like. Because religion teaches us that God is just way up here, he's up in a stained glass window, he's in some statue somewhere, and he's high and lift, and God, we can, we can know God maybe through a man, a holy man, or we can know God, but he's really not that concerned about us. He's concerned that we sin, he wants to forgive our sins, but does he really care about the issues of my life? Because if he does, that tells me something more about this God. And it stirs up a love for him that's beyond something if he's just distant and only caring about certain aspects of our life. So let's look some more at this. This idea of the separation of the body and of the eternal parts of us originated with Greek philosophy. As I talked to you about last week, the Greeks, the Greeks' mind, the Greeks' concept, the Greeks' thinking and their language divided things up into compartments. It's kind of like, <laughs> I learned this years ago in, in a marriage seminar, and I find it's true in our marriage, that, that men, think, men have cubby holes in their brain. So they can take a subject and put it in that cubby hole and forget everything else. So they can come home from work, and, and whatever's going on in the house, they can just focus on one thing and ignore everything else. Women have no cubby holes. Everything's there all at once. It's all moving around, it's all there, and it's often very emotional. And so what I had to learn, and I'm still learning somewhat, 
is that I can't take whatever my wife's going through and try to stick it in a cubbyhole until I want to deal with it. I've got to begin to understand that she's experiencing it differently than I'm experiencing it. And that's kind of a very loose separation of how the Greeks thought. So as I mentioned to you last word, they would take a word like our one word, love, and they would have five and actually six different words to speak love because they applied in very different contexts. And it was not just that. There are three different words for, for life. And I've forgotten one of them, but the basic word is bios, which means the animal life within you, just the, the life, the fact that your heart's beating, that you're breathing. But then there's the word zoe, which is the translated eternal life, which is basically, it's not life forever, it's life at the level God leads it. But that's just, in our, in our language, in our thinking, it's one, but they broke it down into different concepts. Well, the Greeks brought that over, and this was a lot of this, I don't want to get stuck in this, a lot of this originated with Plato. And Plato taught that there was, there were, that everything in this earth had some spiritual basis for it. And there's scripture to back that up, but not the way he taught it. So the, the, that's what's real, and the fo- that's called the form. But, but, the, but the, the, the physical version of it down here is not as real as that. And they, he created this separation. Well, that thinking began to get into the church, the theologians of the church, somewhere around the 300s, the 4th century, and began to become part of their thinking. So with that, they began to separate man into either two parts or three parts. Some taught soul and body, others teach spirit, soul and body, which I think is what's correct. But they separate the body from the eternal part of us. And therefore, because in man's thinking, the eternal part is the more important part, therefore in God's thinking, it must be the more important part. And therefore, yes, God will heal, but it's not as important to God as his, our soul and our spirit is. And that's the foundation for this kind of thought, but it's not what Jesus taught. It's not what Jesus was an example of. So how are we going to know what God's character is really like? Well, the, the, the greatest example we've been given is when God became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14, the Word, the Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld, we could now see His glory, His majesty, His character, His nature, full of, glory, full of grace and full of truth. So God became a man in part so we could now see what God really was like. John 5.19, they're not going to put it up there. Jesus said it about Himself. He said, whatever the Father does, the Son does also. John 12.45, they'll put that up there. Jesus says this, He who sees me sees Him who sent me. He who sees me sees me with your eyes, sees Him who sent me. The next scripture, John 14. This is right after Philip says, I think it's Philip or Stephen, I forget, says, show us the Father. In other words, we want to know what the Father's like. Jesus' answer, he said to him, have you been with me so, lo- so long and yet have not known me, Philip? So here they'd walked with him and yet they didn't know him. He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? How can you say, Show us the Father. Second Corinthians 4.4 4 refers to Christ as the image of God. Colossians 1.15. Put that up. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now the Greek word there for image, again, they have multiple words for image. This Greek word for image is the word... Excuse me, I'm, I'm ahead of myself. That's, so now let's go over, let's begin to look at another aspect of this. Hebrews chapter 1. This is the clearest one. He has in these days spoken to us by His Son, referring to God. He has spoken to us. He's communicated to us through His Son, who became flesh, who He appointed as heir 
of all things through whom he also made the worlds. Verse 3. Who being the bright... I'm going to read through it and then I'm going to go back and break this down for us. Who being... This is talking about Christ. The, Jesus. Who being the brightness of his glory, the Father, and the express image of his, the Father's, person upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high so we're going to look at two parts of this who being the brightness the brightness of his glory that word brightness in hebrew in 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 greek means a radiance it implies it implies the source of the shining comes from another. I'll use this example. There's a difference between reflected light and radiant light. The moon, which I don't know what, what stage it's in right now, but when we have a full moon, it's just so beautiful to see this beautiful brown, round light up in the sky. But none of that light is produced by the moon. That's why we have full moons and partial moons because what happens, as we all know, the light we're seeing from the moon is a reflection of the light that comes from the sun. So when we have an eclipse, a lunar eclipse, then the sun, if I can't get it straight, the sun has become, the earth has become between the, the source of the moon's light and the moon. And so it blocks the light. So now if that light were coming from the moon itself, the earth would never block it. So that's a reflected light. Now, when I was growing up and I was younger, nowadays everything's electronic and watches, they had watches that would glow in the dark, the, the numbers, so you could read it at night. And, and, and those watches, well, most of you look like you may be old enough to remember this, they, they were not electric they had a little thing on the side. You had to wind them up each night. And I remember my grandfather got a self-winding watch, and then he gave one to me. And what it was, it had a little weight inside that when you moved, it, the weight would spin around and it would wind the watch for you. But it was all mechanical. And my grandfather was retired, didn't move enough, so he had to take the watch off and shake it once he was retired. So anyway, but so there was no power in that watch to light the numbers up at night. So they painted them with a luminous paint, luminescent paint. And that would absorb the light during the day. And then when it got dark, it would, it would produce that light back again until it ran out about one in the morning. And so my point is this. The reflected light, nothing's coming from that moon. But the, light, the numbers on the dial of these old watches... It, the source of it wasn't in the watch, but the watch absorbed something so that it could re- radiate it back out. I went through all of that to show you the distinction here. Jesus is the radiance of his Father's glory. It didn't just bounce off of him and reflect off of him. It came from the Father, but it was absorbed in him. Because notice it says, he was the exact brightness of his father's glory so the source of it was his father's glory and there's a reason why we're going through this exercise and the express which means exact precise image of the father's person not his title not his office of who he is as a being in fact the word image there is the Greek word character, character from which we get our word someone's character. And that one of the meanings of that Greek term is that is the exact expression of any person or thing and the, the precise, precise reproduction of them in every respect. So as Jesus said to Philip, if we really want to know the Father's character, his nature, his heart, what motivates him, what he would do in a situation, all we have to do is look at what Jesus did. And that's what we're going to begin to do tonight. 
I've heard all kinds of arguments and read all kinds of arguments of healings passed away and all these great things, but I can't get around this. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The writer of Hebrews said he's the exact, precise representation of the character and person of his Father. So in the time we have left, we're just going to skim through some things and then we'll go through and break some of these down later. So what can we tell about the Father's nature by looking at Jesus regarding the healing of people's bodies? I'm going to go through five things quickly here. Number one, Jesus healed everyone who came to him seeking healing. He didn't heal everybody. So he didn't go into the hospitals and, you know, he didn't, he healed, but he healed, this is significant, he healed everyone, everyone who came to him and asked or sought, sought healing. Often, and we'll look at these down the road, often there were large crowds and everyone in that crowd, now think of this, everyone in that crowd Everyone in that crowd that was sick in any way was healed. We're talking about the Father's nature. That means if you were sick and you were in that crowd, you would have been healed. Secondly, Jesus never turned anyone away seeking healing. He never told anyone that it was not God's will for them to be healed, but it was God's will for them to be sick. He never told anyone that God was teaching them something. And yet these are teachings that you'll hear today. And yet Jesus, as the exemplification of His Father's nature, never said any of these things and never did any of these things. Remember, taking every thought in obedience to Christ. And what man does is when our experience doesn't match the word, we start changing the word to meet our to explain our experience. And that's not exact not at all what Paul was teaching when he said taking every thought captive. He never told anybody it was not God's will for them to be sick. He never told anyone that God was teaching them something with their sickness. Listen carefully. He never checked to see if anybody in that crowd was sinning before He healed them. I've got to imagine, in a multitude of people in that day, someone in that crowd had to be sinning. I'm not encouraging sinning. I'm not talking about that at all. But I'm talking about the image of God who has all these requirements before He's going to... Jesus never sorted them out. Well, let's see, you're a bunch of sinners over here. So, you, In fact, actually, technically, they were all sinners. Not one of the people Jesus healed was saved. And yet I've heard taught and I've read by some people I respect that if... You want God to heal you. you. He only heals those people that are saved. But Jesus healed people that weren't saved. And we'll look at why down the road a bit. Jesus healed several people who didn't even ask for it. In fact, when I started putting this together today, there were more than I remembered. There's the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. That's the, where the, 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 this man who's been lame has been laying there for years. That's where the pool, the, the, they believe that, that, that at certain times an angel would come and he touched the waters and they get disturbed and the first person in the water would get healed. And Jesus went up to this man and asked him if he wanted to be healed. And he said, well, I can't get to the water. And Jesus just tells him to get up. He never came to Jesus and asked to be healed. Je- excuse me, Jesus came to him and asked and healed him. 
Then in, in, there's the man with the withered hand that Jesus found in a temple. This is found in Matthew 12, Mark 3, and Luke 6. Jesus initiated this healing. He just speaks to a man with a withered hand. And withered means it's, 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 a, it's deformed from birth. It's, it's shriveled up. And he just tells him to stretch it out. We may talk about that down the road. But Jesus initiated that healing. He raised the widow's son from the dead in Luke chapter 7. She didn't ask for it. He interrupted the funeral and raised her son from the dead. Matthew 8, verse 32, he delivered the madman of Gadara. He didn't ask for it. He was scared, running away from him. And then in Luke 13, he healed the woman that was bent over 18 years, probably had some form of osteoporosis or, or osteoarthritis. And for 18 years, she's bent over. And she's in the temple and Jesus just tells her to stand up and to be loosed from her infirmity and then indicates that it was the devil that had her bound up. So these are just incidences where Jesus healed people that didn't even come and ask for it. Then fourth, Jesus healed several people that were just touching him. Let's look at some of these. Let's go to Matthew chapter 14. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent into all the surrounding region and they brought to him all who were sick and they begged him that they might touch the hem of his garment. And look at this. As many as touched it were made perfectly well. There's a, in, um, I think it's Matthew 9 and in, in several other gospels, it talks about Jesus was in, in a, a house teaching. And it's, it, I think in Matthew's account, it says, in the power of God to heal was present. This is the story where the, the, the paralytic's friends bring him on a stretcher and they can't get in the door. So they go up on the roof and they tear holes in the tile and lower him down. And, but the power to heal, the ability to heal was present because he was present. God was present to bring healing in that place. It was filled with religious leaders and I've got to imagine some of them had to be sick with something and none of them received it. And we'll talk, may talk later on about why. But the man that was brought and lowered down gets healed. Here they were brought to him. They, they came to him for healing and they, they just, this is interesting. It's a little side note. There are a number of places where people determined how he would heal them. Isn't that interesting? There's the, there's the, the centurion's a good example of that, where the centurion comes to Jesus and says, my servant's lying at home suffering greatly, and Jesus says, I'll come and heal him. He didn't even ask him for anything yet. I'll come. I'll come and heal him. That, I hear the desire of Jesus to, to respond. The centurion was a Roman officer. A Gentile. There's no covenant with God. And Jesus says, I'll, 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 he hears the need, I'll come and heal him. And the centurion says in, in Matthew's gospel, says, no, 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 I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. You just say a word. Now, listen to this. God has just said, I will come to your house and heal your servant. And the Roman officer says, no, do it a different way. Just say a word here, and my servant will be healed. Now, I believe the reason that pleased Jesus so much is the centurion displayed a higher level of faith than the Jews did. Because the centurion saying, you don't need to come and do anything. You just speak a word, and my servant will be healed. So there were people that told you, here's, so here's an example. Just touch the hem of his garment. We're going to look at another example right now. So go over to, um, it's Matthew 9. Now, this, this, this situation here is, is a, a religious leader, Jairus, has come to Jesus saying, my daughter is at the point of death. And Jesus said, I will come and heal her. I'll come, I'll come, I will come, I will come, I will come. And, and, and they're on their way, and this woman, 
who had a flow of blood, an issue of blood for 12 years, came up from behind and touched the hem, hem of his garment. Verse 21. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I shall be made well. Stop there a second. So here she is determining how she's going to receive it. So wait a minute. If God, if God really doesn't care that much about everybody's physical well-being, and he just picks a few chosen special ones that he's going to heal for whatever reason. In fact, we're going to go in and see that here. Go on. I think Matthew does this. Go ahead. And Jesus turned around and said to her, well, see, Mark's version of this is better. Mark's version, Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? That's significant. Because if Jesus, if God's will, his character, was, not to, was to heal that woman or heal some people and not heal other people's, Jesus would have had to know who she was before he allowed the power to go out of him. Because maybe she's not one of the ones that it was God's will to heal. But in Mark's account, he turns around and says, who touched me? For he felt power go out of him when she touched him. So the potential, the will and the power of God to bring healing and wholeness to people's body was resident in Jesus. Whenever there was a demand upon it, either by people coming and asking, or in these cases, where he didn't even know they were asking, they just touched him, and it came out of him. What does that tell us about God's will to heal? Remember, as we look at all these things, Jesus healed everyone, 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 who came to him asking. In order for there to be a Bible doctrine, there has to be at least one scripture to support, at least one scripture, and Jesus says, the Bible actually teaches that to be two, two witnesses. So if it were not God's will to heal, if, if the Bible taught us that God's will is not to heal everybody, there would have to be at least one to show this. There would have to be at least one where Jesus explains to that person, I'm sorry, God loves you. He cares about your spiritual well-being. He cares that you know me and that you're going to get saved. He cares about this enough for me to go to the cross and die for you. But I'm sorry. You just are not one of the some few, elect few, the special few that he's, he's going to heal. There'd have to be one. But there is not one. So in order to say that man has got to come up with his own doctrine, his own doctrine about God's... But here, remember, this reflects on God's character, God's nature, the essence of who, of who God is. Jesus said to Philip, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus never turned anyone away that was seeking healing. Never told anybody it was not God's will for them to be, to be healed. They'd have to stay sick. He never told anybody they were, God was teaching them something. He's the perfect image of the Father. And the fifth thing, Matthew chapter 10. Now, he's just wept over Jerusalem. <laughs> and the verses before that, which we'll look at down the road, says he went around teaching in their synagogues and healing every... He, he went about, which was, means that was his, his custom, his practice, what he normally did. He went about 
teaching the area, teaching in their synagogues, and healing every kind of sickness and every kind of disease among them. He went teaching and healing, teaching and healing. And then he comes up to Jerusalem, and he weeps of Jerusalem, how lost it is. And then he, he, he says that he, he calls... He, then he called, he call, he, when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now he's transferring this. The word actually is authority. He transfers the authority to them. Go to the next verse. And that, in between, he names the disciples. These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of Israel. Keep going. And go as you preach, saying, The kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. Next verse. And heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So Jesus equates the declaration of the kingdom of God being here with delivering people from physical challenges that Satan brought into their lives. Demonic influences, sickness and disease. Well, it goes on. Let's go over to Luke chapter 10. What happens here is he has just... And after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others. You understand that Jesus had the 12 disciples, which are called the apostles of the Lamb. But then he had other disciples that traveled around with him and did things that he told them to do. And there's a group called the 70, this is where they come from, that were also among his disciples. They didn't have the same close relationship with him, but they had a relationship with him. And here he's commissioning them. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also. And he sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest and send laborers into the harvest. Next verse. And heal the sick and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. So Jesus equates the kingdom of God, the character and nature of his kingdom, what he rules over as including the healing of physical bodies. So I go back to the very beginning. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I only do, only do, what I see my Father doing. So whenever Jesus healed people, it was something he saw his Father, his Father doing. In fact, Jesus in John 14 says, the works that I do, after he talks about Philip, if you see me, you see the Father, the works that I do shall you do also, and greater works than I do. Because, the, 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 because he said, it's, it's the Father in me that did the works that you've seen. The character and nature of God is He loves you so much. He cares about every aspect of your life. He cares about the hairs on your head. He doesn't prevent you from losing them, but He cares about them. <laughs> he knows the hairs on your head. He cares about your body. One of the verses that convinced me of this is Romans 8.32. I prayed that earlier. I got healed on this verse. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. That's you. How will he not also, together with him, freely give us all things?
That verse says, whatever, when God gave us Christ, He included with Him everything God has for us. Whatever God's able to do, He has given to us already. Now, why we haven't received it's a different issue. But we can't get to that until we all come together and understand what God's will is for you. And His will is based on His character and His nature. So it didn't change when the last apostle of the Lamb died. It doesn't change. It doesn't change. It's never changed. It's always been His character and His will. We're going to see as we go down the road how much God demonstrated that for us. I'll close with a story of a pastor I know of. And he and his wife were in an accident, and he was fine. And she was examined in the emergency room and was told that she had broken her back. Um, and so she was put in, a, in a, one of these stretchers and a thing around her neck, and they said, whatever you do until we get you set, don't move. Because if you move, you'll, you could sever your, your spinal cord and be paralyzed for the rest of your life. Now, that's not news you want to hear. That can, that can engender fear in you. I mean, if I, if I, does that mean if I blink or turn my head at all? Because it's hard just to lie still. And she described perfect peace. She said, I had no fear. I didn't know how God was going to deliver me, but I knew God was going to deliver me because I know, this is her words, I know how much God loves me. I don't know how he's going to do it, but I know how much God cares about me and cares about this. So I'm not the slightest bit anxious. Sometime I'll tell you the story of how how she was healed instantly on the spot but it won't fit into what we're talking about tonight. I mentioned to you last week, I I don't have a sense yet of praying for people. You can pray yourself for yourself and people, but I want to build a foundation. We pray for people often too quickly before we've built a foundation down in our heart. It's not whether you mentally understand this or not. It's how much of it actually drops that 18 inches down into your heart and becomes part of you so that you know it, not with this, but you know it in here. Jesus said, if you believe in your heart, if you will not let doubt in your heart, it's all about what's down in your heart. It can't get into your heart until your mind will accept it. So what we're doing now is we're renewing our mind to what God is like, to God's character, God's nature, God's will, based on His Word. And as we begin to meditate down in that and talk about that, that will, that will change the... Well, I have... I'll end with this. My son, Chris, gave me a few years ago a pair of sunglasses, nice sunglasses, and they're Polaroid sunglasses. And sometimes I would go down to a beach near where we live uh, uh, in the afternoon on our day off, and we'd bring some coffee down there, and the sun's just beginning to go down over, the, over Narragansett Bay, and it, the bright light sunlight reflects off of it, but with these Polaroid glasses on, it diminishes it. And the way Polaroid lenses work is they block out some of the light rays going in one direction or the other. I don't remember which. So if you take Polaroid lens and you turn them, then all the light will start coming through. If you turn this way, only some of the rays will get through. And our mind works that way. Our mind will only let certain things in that we like or we agree with. And so our minds are limiting how much of God we can know by the understanding we have of Him. So the process has to start with turning the Polaroid lens so that more and more of the light of who God is from His Word can begin to get into our mind and then seep down into our heart. So this is why it takes some patience to do this, but it's well worth the effort. Let's pray. Father, we've talked a, said a lot tonight. And to the best I know how, I've tried to represent you from your Word of what you're like. But as we prayed at the beginning, that can only happen as your Holy Spirit, who's the only one who can reach into our hearts, can take the words we've t- taken, spoken, 
the truth of your word and break through the images of our mind, the strongholds, the arguments, the imaginations of our mind with the truth of your word of who you are and begin to sow it as seeds down into our hearts to produce a harvest, a harvest of well-being, a harvest of love. For Father, it's your will not only that we be well and whole, that we begin to take the good news that you care and love the hurting people that are around us with your love and your healing grace so that we can go out into the world as the disciples did and declare that the kingdom of God is among you in a tangible way, that you love them, that you care for them, and that you're real. And so, Father, as we go on this journey together with you, we're trusting you to show us, to bring the truth to light in our minds and then down into our hearts. We thank you for that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.